Welcome to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Today, on Episode 8 of Season 5, we present a conversation between Stephen W. Beattie and festival favorite Wayne Johnson about his latest acclaimed book, Jenny's Boy, A Newfoundland Childhood. My name is Stephen Beattie. I'm a reviewer and critic in Stratford, Ontario, and it's my great pleasure to chat once again with Wayne Johnson, uh, the author of The Custodian of Paradise, The Colony of Unrequited Dreams, The Navigator of New York, and uh, many other best-selling novels uh, set in his native Newfoundland, as is his latest book, Jenny's Boy, which is a non-fiction work, a uh, work of memoir that uh, goes back to his childhood and talks about uh, a couple of years growing up in the Goulds, a town in rural Newfoundland. Thank you for joining us to the in the Ottawa Writers' Festival podcast, Wayne Johnson. Thanks uh, for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always my pleasure to talk to you because, uh, you know, I, I find your work so engaging. And certainly this is uh, this is no different um, from the novels in that regard. Uh, it is different, obviously, in terms of the genre. But I find it interesting that the book you published last year, The Mystery of Right and Wrong, uh, was a novel that was based on the history of your wife's family. And that was done through the prism of fiction, whereas Jenny's Boy is written as a novel with novelistic tactics in the genre of nonfiction. It's a, it's a declared memoir. Why did you decide to write these two books back to back and in these ways? Like, why did you decide on fiction for The Mystery of Right and Wrong and nonfiction for Jenny's Boy? Um, all, all of my all, all of my books um, tend to be tend to walk the line between fiction and nonfiction uh, pretty finely. Right. Um, in uh, The Mystery of Right and Wrong, um, there are four sisters who I didn't even bother to try to pretend they weren't, as I put it, inspired by real life people. Right. Uh, they, they certainly are. Uh, that doesn't mean that absolutely everything is the same, but they certainly are inspired by real-life people. However, there were things about some other characters that um, I simply didn't know. Um, I knew the sisters very well, but their parents, uh, especially, um, had huge gaps for me in their lives because um, they had lived um uh, unusual surreptitious kinds of alternate lives right and i didn't find out about until after i married my wife um and I, I i found out in general what those lives were like but as to what the details were i had to kind of supply them myself so i thought about nonfiction. But 
eventually I realized that I, I couldn't uh, write a full flowing narrative um, unless I used fiction. Right. Um, because otherwise I would be saying constantly, you know, this may or may not be true uh, in, in a, you know, a factual sense. And I didn't want to, uh, I, I couldn't foresee the book working that way. This book kind of goes the other way. I, I, I know everything there is to know, at least as much as I can remember of my childhood. Right. Which, you know, one, I have a kind of, uh, advantage in remembering my childhood because it was so eventful <laughs> and, and to say the least <laughs> um especially up to you know uh, um the age in the book which is nearly eight years old um i worried that i wouldn't be able to find a part of my childhood that I could use so that the book, although nonfiction, would have a narrative form. Right. I was I was really hoping I could, rather than you know, jump from time to time and place to place, find one place and one time that would be somehow or somewhat emblematic of all my childhood and and my family. Uh, because as unusual as my childhood was, my sibling's childhood was unusual as well. <laughs> and, and my parents' marriage was unusual. Um, so I wanted to get all those things in, but I didn't want, you know, for instance, we moved from house to house to house constantly. Right. Even in the seven years or eight years that are covered in the book, um, some of which, you know, when I was one, two, three, or four, I don't remember. We moved something like 23 times. And we, you know, we kept on moving after the book ends. And that right. ending, uh, you know, that moving didn't end. So, you know, how to collapse all of those different houses, all of the different neighborhoods, all of the different time into a narrative with a you know a, a strong drive forward momentum um which is what i wanted because i think i thought it would do most justice to uh not just the a story but the story right um so i kind of auditioned the years you know i kind of went down through the years of my childhood and i thought you know, teenage years are not good because by then I'd pretty much gotten over most of what the book is about. And then I couldn't go back too far because I literally couldn't remember sure. and a lot of the people were no longer with us. So I settled on this one house that we lived in for about six months across the road in this small town in Newfoundland. Uh, across Petty Harbor Road, actually the road to Petty Harbor. Um, we lived there for six months across the road from my grandparents' house. And a lot of things came to a head in those six months. Right. Not everything by any right. means, but en enough that I could honestly say um, that there was a narrative there that 
um, you know, it, it didn't have what a novel has in the way of a beginning and an ending, uh, if, if you're thinking conventionally. But it did have a sort of place to start and a place to end off that would right. give the at least in spirit, some sense of what those seven or eight weird years of my uh, childhood were like. Well, we can we can get into the the weirdness of those years a little bit, but uh, I also I'm fascinated by the sense in which the period of time that's encapsulated in this book for you also extends outward for your mother, who is the titular Jenny in the book, because it's basically a homecoming for her. She ends up coming back to the house that is right across the street from the house she grew up in, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, she she predicted that she would never get further from home than across the street long before we moved into that house. I right. don't know how to do it. <laughs> But that, you know, almost was the case. Not until her 60s did she leave Newfoundland. Uh, and then, even then she came back eventually with my dad. Um, but yeah, she grew up uh, in that, you know, believe it or not, a farming community in Newfoundland. A uh, very small farm. Um, my grandfather and grandmother somehow made a go of it with seven kids in this small farm she grew up there that was her very you know just geography geographically speaking very circumcised circumscribed i should right. say right. right um you know sort of horizons in all directions but nowhere to go you know right and she thought well this is the extent of my life this is as far as i'm going to get and um the time period covered in the book does lead you to think that that indeed is as far as probably any of the characters are going to get because there was there was coming a change in uh society in Newfoundland uh a change from a you know a more fishing and farming and hunting kind of life to right a slightly more industrial, technological, um, urban kind of life. But we didn't see that yet. It, it hadn't reached us. Right. So we right. were still back almost in a kind of pre-Confederate uh, kind of era. Right, right. The uh, The nature of rural Newfoundland at the time in the 1960s that this book depicts is very much, it's rugged, it's masculine, the men go out and they they fish and they hunt and they play sports and your brothers were all, um, you know, very avid sportsmen and so on and so forth. You, um, in this book, it, this book covers a period where you were suffering from numerous ailments, um, which were not defined at the beginning of the book, some of them get defined as the book goes on, um, but they rendered you incapable of doing the same kind of masculine activities that your brothers would do you went out you know you would go out fishing with your father occasionally um what was that like for you did that mark you as an outsider in the ghouls uh it, it more it, uh i realized now that it did more right. than i realized then right you know when you're when you're that age um you don't really have a complete sense of how you're looked upon by others. Right. 
Um, now, I knew how my brothers looked upon me because I, I was so often exposed to them and <laughs> and vice versa. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, you know, I, I had so many things wrong with me that um, I was pretty much written off, you know, like it, it, I remember an uncle telling me as if really he was doing me a favor. Uh, it was almost like telling a seven-year-old to get their affairs in order because right, right. I had any, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, you're, you're just not going to make it. You have too many things wrong with you. You, you are seven years old and you weigh about 40 pounds, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, I had pleurisy, um, couldn't breathe properly. I couldn't, uh, keep food down. I couldn't, from what food I could keep down, I didn't get any nutrition. And so I caught all the sorts of diseases that you get if you're malnourished. Right. Uh, and, and, and then some. And also dealing with the doctor in the ghouls that I dealt with, I picked up one more uh, affliction, which was that while doing his best to help me from an especially, through an especially bad period, he gave me a booster shot that he said was full of, you know, all the vitamins in the world. Right. And he, he gave it to me um, in my arm and it struck the ulnar nerve in my arm, basically paralyzed my arm for two or three years. Right. So that I had to switch, which, are, you know, was my dominant hand and to this day, I'm ambidextrous because of it, or almost. Um, so you know, um, I was I was this little kid who, to walk, had to use a bamboo cane. Right. Um, to sleep, I had this thing called a bedmobile uh, that my parents bought. It was a bed. You see these bunks that are on wheels, so you can move them around the house. One of the advantages of that was that it could be almost folded up in half. Right. And so I could be in bed, but sitting up. And when I was sitting up, I breathed much better than when I was lying down. Um, and however, um, I still coughed a lot. So my brothers um, made it clear that if I, you know, if I wanted to live in the same house as them, I had to live in a different room and they didn't, they didn't care which room it was. You know, there was one room for the boys and I was supposed to be in it. There were two bunk beds, you know, so four, four kids, Right. but I made too much noise. I kept them awake. So, you know, they would literally push me the bed out of the room and they'd say, they, you know, they'd always say, where would you like to sleep tonight? You know, living room and as much as we had one little nook of a dining room in the kitchen you know what do you what, what do you think you would like to do and that's that's kind of what i did well it was um, kind of your your movements in the house were kind of artificially prescribed because the second floor was war is that correct yeah it was we call it the half house because what somebody had done to make heating it easier and less expensive was they had simply walled off the right. upper story right um really what we had was a kind of bungalow that was very narrow so just these tiny little rooms and then in the boys bedroom two bunk beds there were no girls yet we had two on the way but they weren't there yet 
If we had had two more girls, I don't know what we would have done. <laughs> I, there was nowhere for them. Uh, and my parents had, you know, in this house, this tiny little bedroom. And um, that's where we lived. And that's where we kind of clashed clashed as a family. Right. That's where we, um, you know, we, or it's where my parents clashed. My, my dad had a, a kind of scientific view of the world but he really wasn't all that well educated he he wished he was better educated right. than he was and my mom was very old-fashioned in a religious sense and in the sense of um what are people in the community thinking about us you know how are we looked upon how are right. we regarded that was an enormously important thing right and i i therefore was an enormous nuisance in that because <laughs> That's where all the money was going, you know, or part of it. Uh, part of the money was going and trying to figure out what to do with me. Um, so all that, you know, it all played out in a way that was um, hilariously funny at times to quite sad at times. Never, never grim, you know. I even I, who, you know, I I, I didn't really understand what it meant that I wasn't going to see adulthood. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't have any concept of death or right. uh, you know, re not really. My grandmother tried to imbue me with a sense of this, but her notion of it was highly eccentric as well. <laughs> you know, she, uh, she invented a kind of version of heaven that suited her more than the version presented by the church or the priests right. or whatever. Which was not easy to get away with uh, in Newfoundland uh, at that time. She was a formidable um, person, uh, as my mother was, and so she she managed to uh, she managed to carry it off. You know? She uh, she one of one of my favorite recurring points in the book is the shrine that she keeps in her house yeah. with a votive candle and a picture of her son who died of pneumonia at age seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Leonard. Um, it was not that unusual at that time in Newfoundland for people to have these uh, almost sort of uh, Mexican-type shrines, right. the ones you see in houses and um, such places, grottos or whatever in Mexico, small ones. Um, I can remember the few times that I went into other people's houses, you know, sort of being taken up by surprise by rounding a corner and there's a statue of the Blessed Virgin or a statue of, you know, Christ. Right. And, uh, in, you know, in the gloom of a house, you know, just, just there almost like furniture. And uh, it was, uh, it, you know, it, it was quite extraordinary. But my grandmother um, always had one of these um in her house, sometimes more than one, depending on uh, what was going on in the house at the time. When Leonard, her youngest son, uh, and the son who never survived childhood, when he was ill, uh, she spent quite a lot of time, instead of going to church, in front of this little shrine that she right. built her in his room, actually, and saying her version of prayers for him lighting candles for him and he never made it he as you say he he you know he died 
tuberculosis and consequent uh, pneumonia um, were common things back then. Right. And that um, that was a huge event in her life and her grandparents' life, but also in 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 mine. Not that I witnessed it, but that she kind of adopted me, so to speak, as a Leonard replacement. Right. She didn't know she was doing that, but she missed him so much, and she believed she had this notion that although heaven was perfect. Leonard was still sick in heaven and still needed a mother, but was up there alone right. without, you know, someone to take care of him, without someone to keep him company. That's the view she had of heaven. It was contradictory to the church's view. Heaven is supposed to be perfect. Right. Uh, but she believed basically that it was just exactly like earth, except that, um, you know, heaven, uh, Leonard was up there. Um, and needed her so to tide her over until she got to Leonard she took care of me right right in the in the strangest you know kind of way she would you know she would give, <laughs> give, give me baths while I was standing up in a bathtub and do a creak of uh, critique of my emaciation you know she'd poke a finger in my belly and she'd say you know Oh, look, she said, you're so skinny. My finger came out the other side, you know, and I said, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. And I'd been looking, but I couldn't see my back. She'd swear, oh, yes, it did. It did. She said, you're so skinny. I can see your soul. You know, I can see your soul. And I said, well, what does it look like? She said, well, it's white like other souls, but it has the black scuff of original sin on it, you know, Um this was the way she carried on with me. But she did it in a way that didn't terrify me. Right, um, right. Do you yeah. do you think that that her religious fervor and the religious belief of the other townspeople was a function of the deprivation in the ghouls at the time, and they were looking for something, some way out, or something better? Yes, uh, without a doubt. Um, you know the old Marxian quote that religion is the opiate of the masses. Right. Uh, I, I think was the case here. They were the masses, and uh, there was a certain comfort to be had in the notion that, however bad this life was, a better one was coming. Right, right. Uh, um, at the same time, it wasn't just waiting for that life. It was gaining comfort, just anticipating that life to come and making this one more endurable. Now that that makes it sound grim, but they, you know, they're they're the townspeople had this kind of Irish humor um, at the same time. So even as they were churchgoers and and supposedly devout, no one was more critical in a funny way of the priest and the Catholic Church right. than Catholics themselves. Right. They reserve it to themselves to make fun of the Catholic Church, but boy, when they do it, they really go to. <laughs> you know. My my grandmother used to make fun of uh, how the priest sang mass. Right. She used to, she used to say, you know, seven years to become a priest, you'd think they could afford one year for singing. <laughs> <laughs> She'd say, you know, that 
I don't know why God bothered to crucify Christ. Why didn't she just have him listen to Father McGettig and sing the Mass? You know? <laughs> and then she'd bless herself and say, you know, that's a sin for me. Right. Right. And I mean, certainly, certainly this was passed down to your mother, um, which is in opposition to your father who fancied himself a very rational and scientific man. Um, mm -hmm. One of the comparisons I had in the back of my head as I was reading Jenny's boy, and, and bear with me on this one, is to William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. Mm. Because both books are about uh, mothers who are trying to come to grips with an understanding of what is afflicting their children. And both books have, as, as one of their deeper themes, the collision between science and religion. Mm -hmm. And well, can, sure. you talk, can you talk a little bit about the the um, the reaction that your mother had, for example, when she went to uh, the first doctor um, who basically gave her a dressing down um, for, you know, more or less, he, he accused her of neglecting you yes. for not taking you to the doctor before she did and not getting tests done and not having um because did it you didn't have the money for medicine um right. so can you can you talk a little bit about her attitude toward your sickness versus that of the medical establishment part of it had to do with the notion i mentioned before of how you are looked at in the small town that you live in especially by figures of authority so right. how, how are you looked at by the priest how are you looked at by the doctor? Um, and so this idea that he, you know, when he criticizes her as not being a good mother, this is this is a tremendous insult right. to her because it's an authority figure telling her that you know she's not up to scratch. Um, but also throughout the book, there does run this tension between religion, a religious view of the world, and a scientific uh, or sort of more rational view of the world. My father was a laboratory technologist who, if he had had all his druthers, would have been you know, a PhD or have had right. at least a master's degree, but uh, that was not in the cards for him. But he would talk that way. And he, would, he was always intimidated by learned people if they happened to come to the house. And the most learned person in any Newfoundland community back then was the priest. You know, the most educated person, seven years in a seminary, learning Latin. They, they were the most educated. And yet, to my dad, they were the most irrational as well. Right. He right. admired scientists, but he wasn't one himself. He was sort of working on the edge of the scientific world. Um, so there was this, uh, you know, clash between the rational world and the, the scientific world. And my dad was convinced that if, you know, science could be brought into the world of Newfoundland, it would be a much better place to live in. Whereas right. my mom thought quite the opposite. Science was in a way, uh, a you know, a, a way of refuting God's power because you were attributing it to other forces. Right. Medicine could help. Science could help you. That implied that you were abandoning the help of God in favor of something else. Right. 
So they they made for quite a couple, in my parents. <laughs> <laughs> the sparks did fly. You Your know. father had a had, had something of a religious devotion, or at least he had a church, uh, as far as as the depiction in Jenny's Boy goes. And the church is the Crystal Palace, which is the local bar. Do you think that his feeling of of sort of wounded pride at the fact that he did not reach greater heights in his professional endeavors left him feeling trapped and that led to to his alcoholism um yes um and it's always been a a, a matter of sort of great concern to me uh to what degree i especially because i was so ill uh held him back if if he really could have achieved more but ultimately didn't because of having so many difficulties at home right he he even went to the to the lens sometimes of implying or coming right out and saying that if not it the, the implication was that if not for getting married and if not for having a family and having all that financial and emotional and uh, you know uh, energy drain on him, uh, he could have been the kind of man he, he admired. Right. Um, so he would go to the Crystal Palace, which, as you say, is a church-like kind of place, where he would pursue a kind of spiritual kind of life because that's what. Um, mood you know enhancing drugs do do right? yeah. you know even if it's just a glass of beer uh, that's your place to go and hold forth and that's what he used to do he would take us there leave us outside in the car um trust my two older brothers to take care of me and my younger brother and sometimes we were out there for quite a long time and he would come out and when he was drinking, he was a completely different person than when he was not. And this is something that I don't really get a chance to get into in the book all that much. Um, he, he was he was very, he retreated into himself when he was drinking. Most people become extroverts when they right. drink. Right. He did just the opposite. Uh, at a party, once he had had a drink or two, he would sort of move away from the party. He sit by himself, brood, watch the goings on, and inevitably uh, be picked upon by those people who um, religious themselves and sort of anti-scientific and kind of mocked his view of the world. Right. It it, it made for some um, wild and crazy parties, and in the kitchen, the many many kitchens uh, that we lived in. But he, you know, he, he, he had a, a many different periods in his life. He he eventually quit drinking later in life, and um, often throughout his life, quit drinking through long periods of time. And his his real self came out then, right? And, and he would talk about his childhood in a way that implied that. It implied the very opposite of what he thought about himself, which was that what he ought to have done was 
stay in the place where he was born and pursue the kind of life, ironically, that he really did prefer. In his later life, he fished, gardened, um, did all these things that, you know, uh, he kind of looked down upon right. uh, when he was younger. Um, so he, you know, he he went through various, various phases. He was a very complicated guy. Right. Um, quite, quite funny when he was sober, you know. You, you know. mentioned that you, you felt at the time a certain guilt uh, at the prospect that you were one of the people who was holding your father back. And one of the most cutting remarks in the book, and I think it's Jenny who makes it, is just she says publicly that you were more trouble than the other kids combined. Yeah. And that yeah. that preyed on you in the time. I wonder how difficult it is to go back and remember that period in your life, given that. It's 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 not easy, and it's not something I would have done if my parents were still alive. Right. Um, I, you know, it'd be hard to face them over Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, when I, I I now can see their point of view and the pressure they were under, and how at times they simply, even if I was right there in front of them, they couldn't hold their tongue and right. uh, to say inside their heads what they meant and you know it was it was some it was a common belief that i was you know when i was very young i was more trouble than all the kids uh, the other kids combined my brother craig thought that you know um he didn't have to take care of my younger brother to the degree that he had to take care of me sometimes getting into fights just to protect right. me um I sort of, you know, uh, um, uh, more than sort of, I, I grew, you know, I don't write about this to a great degree in the book, except in the afterward. But when, for whatever reason, what the way I put it in the afterward, I think it's in the afterward, something in me tilted toward life. My body changed. I have no idea why. It was never diagnosed, all the various things I had. And my body eventually changed, and the strangest things began to happen in a good way. I I had these growth spurts and accelerated past my older brothers, became considerably taller than them. Um, you know, they'll probably they'll probably cry, you know, foul, but uh, <laughs> usually better at sports than them. Uh, you know, I became a, a fairly athletic person. I, right. I'm, 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 you know, over six feet tall. My brothers and sisters are, you know, in uh, Baltimore's mansion, another memoir of mine. I say that I'm descended from spud runts, you know, people, <laughs> people who eat nothing but potatoes. Um, that's what I, 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 when I tease them, that's what I call them these days, right. you know, spud runts. Um I don't know what happened, uh, uh, to tell you the truth. Um, there really is, in the scientific literature, there are many examples of people like me. Um, nobody knows why these things happen. They're not um, psychosomatic. They're real. Uh, they can kill you. And um, for some reason, I survived. I think it was largely due to Jenny and Lucy right. and 
um, um, you know, they are kind of the counterparts in women to my father and my grandfather in Baltimore's mansion. Right, right. One of the uh, one of the the funniest sections in the book, you're talking about the mysterious nature of of your various ailments. Um, it's the section in which uh, your family deconstructs the term idiopathic, which is uh, you know the, the illnesses that don't have an obvious source or or um, genesis. You know, I, I laughed out loud during that passage, and I laughed out loud at a lot of passages in the book. And it, it you know, talking about the book and your illnesses, and and the you know the the poverty and the ghouls and so on and so forth. It it could make it sound like a very grim book. It's a very funny book, as are you know all of your other works. What what for you is the importance and nature of of humor um, for a book like this? Um. Well, first of all, it's it's true to the facts because we actually did carry on like that uh it was a survival mechanism i think i guess um but you know we had so we had a lot of fun mixed in with all of this you know apparent um misery because um when you have nothing else you use language as a way to survive and you use language as a way to subvert authority. Um, one of the reasons I think there are so many Newfoundland writers and performers and uh, stand-up comedians is that there was a, an entire series of generations that had to get by on their wits, pretty right. much nothing else. And, um, you know, everyone in most families... Um, was able to defend themselves, whether within the family or without, through the 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 use of uh, use of their wit. Um, but you know, I I when when we were talking, uh, when when it was finally told uh, to me that I had idiopathic uh, illnesses, I remember uh, you know especially my grandmother Lucy trying to get to the bottom of what idiopathic meant and i didn't bloom at the time and she said so you know something to the effect so they know you have it they know how it makes you feel but they don't know what causes it and they don't know how to cure it and i said yeah and she said well that pretty much sums you up <laughs> <laughs> that's the way she looked at it you know it was like oh finally a, a rational explanation you know uh, there is none um but you know the 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 wit was always there the comedy was always there it it, it did sustain us we had a lot of fun with it we you know if, if we have guests for dinner these days and my sisters are there because they live near where I live in Toronto. Uh, if we have guests, they get to the point sometimes where they, if they haven't witnessed this before, they get to the verge of wanting to run from the room. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the saying about, you know, hockey. If you're going to be a hockey player, keep your head up and keep your stick on the ice. Well, if you're going to sit at our table 
you you have to be fast with the language and you know quick just right. quick -witted. and i've seen people just get so overwhelmed just to sit there in silence and i hope they're having a good time as they listen because we you know one of the i was asked uh recently how do you remember all this do you think uh the rest of your family are you know going to agree with your memories and one of the ways and probably the way uh, I remember it, and I hope it will mean that they remember it pretty uh, much the same way, is that we told these stories right. over and over and over again uh, for self-entertainment, to entertain other people, I think to try to figure out what happened. Um, but these stories were told so often that any one of us could have told them. Um, you know, it was almost like a comedy routine that we were constantly trying to get down perfect. And we got better and better and better at it. And the further removed we were from the um, less pleasant aspects of it, the better we were able to focus on the funny parts. Right. I, I, my, my sister does an, an amazing impersonation of uh, trying to catch a school bus when um, it's a winter day and the school bus only needs stop in front of our house, but it won't stop. So she's running alongside of the bus, about seven or eight years old, and she's banging on the door, looking <laughs> in at the driver, and he's looking out at her, shaking his head, and she's she just, you know... Uh, it's it would put, put you literally in the stitches, as yeah. we say. Um, to 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 be a guest at a dinner table like that is a, is a challenging thing. You know? <laughs> that that goes to uh, the the Newfoundland storytelling um, ability. I would say the Newfoundland storytelling gene because it seems to be pervasive in in um, Newfoundlanders that I've come across. But you were also a very bookish child. Um, you read Steinbeck, you read um, Dickens, you read, you know, whatever you get your hands on. And and that, um, I can only assume, must have given you um, your first inklings of uh, structure and form in, in books and, and things like that. Would you say that your approach to books was similar to Lucy's approach to religion? Would you say that that was your substitute for religion when you were a child? Um, yeah, I, I would. Um, the books I read um, were library books usually, because we um, or textbooks that my older brothers used. Um, the books I read were books that could be read by adults, but also by children. Right. So they were books like uh, Huckleberry Finn, uh, as you say, The Grapes of Wrath. A lot of people don't think of that as a book that can be read by kids, but Steinbeck in that book he uses a very simple. Uh, style because of the people that he's writing about. Um, you know, I also read Tom Sawyer, um, you know, book, books like that, Gulliver's Travels, that right. read like adventure books on one level, but have another level. Um, I think I was kind of typical of a lot of writers, and I wouldn't necessarily wish this on anyone, but they had convalescent childhoods. Right. And because of that, they had a lot more time to themselves alone and spent it, um, if they were lucky, uh, reading books. And if they were 
very precocious, starting to write at a very early age, which which I did, you know, nothing sophisticated, but just, you know, I I, I wrote the first sentence to about 200 books, you know, <laughs> the, the, the first paragraph. I, I was always inspired to write a book and I'd write the first paragraph and I'd feel like it was finished. Um, yeah, the, those those books, I lived in those books, you know, I, I remember reading The Grapes of Wrath and thinking to myself, um, what is it about this family that makes them think they have it bad? <laughs> because it's compared to us, they really got it good, you know? Like they're 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 traveling all the time. It's warm. Every night they sit around a campfire eating, you know, in as much as I could eat, eating my favorite foods, which right. is, you know, fried potatoes, uh, fried ground beef, what we call toutons, but they call fried bread. Um, you know, when they had spare time, they were ca catching catfish in the river, uh, singing songs around the campfire overnight, singing, you know, sleeping under the stars, no school to go to or to do. And I, th I thought, wow, you know, my favorite part of The Grapes of Wrath is not, um, you know, when the union busters finally uh, do their thing in the right. book and the whole American dream falls apart. It's when the Jodes are on the road and they're getting along and they're happy and the promise of California is still there. And for all I knew, it was going to be found. I, I thought, yeah, yeah. I, I thought, I thought that's where they were headed. Yeah, and uh, I was, you know, it, it didn't ruin the book for me, but uh, I was surprised that the book ended the book ended that, that way. Same thing with um, Huckleberry Finn. I mean, I never wanted that raft trip to end, <laughs> e even though for for Jim it was nightmarish. Sure. As he didn't know when or if he was going to get caught or what you know Huck and Tom were going to cook up for him next. Um, you know, but I thought, oh wow, you know, the Mississippi, I didn't even know what it was. It was a big right. body of water. They were on a raft. You know, I would have loved to have a raft. <laughs> uh, they were on a raft. They were pulling down the Mississippi. Uh, I wanted that to go on forever. You know, I, 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 what I wanted from books as a child was what I wanted from life as a child, which was that I wanted time to stand still when I was having a good time. Right. You know, I, right. I, I didn't have a lot of periods of health as a child, but when I was feeling better than usual and the mood in the houses that we lived in was better than usual. I wanted that to never end, you know, there was nothing I liked more than a snowstorm because it kept everyone indoors. Right. And so we were all together as a family and not scattered to the four winds. Um, that's, that's what I wanted. And, um, you know, I, I, there are other writers, I think of, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson, who basically spent his childhood in bed and, you know, wrote, pretty good books when he was still in his teens, you know. Uh, there are quite a few writers like that who started out that way. Um, 
but then I, you know, I then I underwent that transformation, and there was a period of time when I put books aside, uh, except at school. Um, but you know, I I took up sports. I decided that I would dis I would study medicine. Um, it was kind of decided for me, but I, I didn't fight back all, all that hard. For a while, it looked like I might become a priest, as far-fetched as that seems now. <laughs> uh, um, you know, it, it, was, uh, it, it was interesting to go through those phases. And I, I remember by the time I got to university, I, I started to circle back to my childhood's inclinations and started to read books uh, with a more serious intent and to understand them better and to have a different kind of appreciation for them. Um, so in my second year of university, um, I was basically supposed to finish that year, which was called pre-medicine, and then apply to medical school. Um, and I just realized one day that I had to make the announcement to my mom and dad, <laughs> my dad especially, you know, the man of science. Uh, I don't want to be a doctor, you know. What do you want to be? A writer. <laughs> Long silence after that. <laughs> you know? I remember my mom saying, well, you know, if you want to be a writer, we won't stand in your way, but you're on your own, you know. Um, we don't think it's a realizable vocation and you know we think you should go to a trade school or you know get some uh diploma that takes two years to get and won't cost us a fortune and um i said okay deal you know <laughs> the deal is done and so from that time on i was on my own and the know, rest, the rest as they say is history and that kind, of ties, that kind of ties back into uh, one of the last things that Lucy says to you um, in the book, which is, I hope there's a future in books. And I think that Canadian readers can be very glad that for you there was a future in books uh, because you produced some of Canada's finest and certainly Jenny's Boy is a fabulous read. Uh, it's funny, it's vibrant, it's uh, fascinating. It has all sorts of different levels. And I want to thank you so much for joining us for this uh, edition of the Ottawa International Writers Festival podcast, because it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Wayne. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's a pleasure for me as well. That was Stephen Beattie in conversation with Wayne Johnson. Wayne's latest, Jenny's Boy, is available now from Perfect Books on Elgin Street and at independent booksellers across the country. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.